Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from Sermons on Sovereignty. We might say Sermons on Doctrines of Grace or even <clears throat> Calvinism. <laughs> but, uh, Spurgeon was of that uh, persuasion for sure. The very first uh, message in this little book that I have, by the way, at the uh, on the Puritan hard drive, which you can receive from the Stillwaters Revival Books people at PuritanDownloads.com. I think it will be well worth your time and investment to have this uh, near you. Um, but the first part of this, the very first message is from the autobiography, which we've already covered. So I'm not going to read message number one. Let's go to message number two in this book, Misrepresentations of True Calvinism cleared away. In the year 1861, the church of which Mr. Spurgeon was pastor completed its tremendous new structure, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You remember going through all that with me. The first sermon by Mr. Spurgeon in this new building was preached on Monday afternoon, March 25. A few days later in this new building on Thursday, April 11, Mr. Spurgeon had what we today would call a Bible conference. The theme of the conference was Exposition of the Doctrines of Grace. The speakers and their subjects were as follows. Election by John Bloomfield, Human Depravity by Evan Robert, um, Particular Redemption by James Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon's brother, Effectual Calling by James Smith, and The Final Perseverance of Believers in Christ as uh, by William O'Neill. Mr. Spurgeon himself, as pastor of the church, was the MC, and he gave the following introductory message as printed in Volume 3 of the New Park Street and Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And the main body of the message would have been as follows. There is nothing upon which men need to be more instructed that on the question of what Calvinism really is. The most infamous allegations have been brought against us, and, and sometimes, I must fear, by men who know them to be utterly untrue. And to this day, there are many of our opponents who, when they run short of matter, invent and make for themselves a man of straw. We'll call that man uh, John Calvin. And then we'll shoot all their arrows at it. We're not come here to defend your man of straw, shoot at it or burn it as you will, and if it suits your convenience, still oppose doctrines which were never taught, and rail at fictions which, save in your brain, were never in existence. We come here to state what our views really are, and we trust that any who do not agree with us will do us the justice of not misrepresenting us. If they can disprove our doctrines, let them state them fairly and, and then overthrow them. But why should they f first caricature our opinions and then afterwards attempt to put them down? Among the gross falsehoods which have been uttered against the Calvinist proper is the wicked calumny that we hold the damnation of little infants. A baser lie was never uttered. There may have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth a miscreant who would dare to say that there were infants in hell, but I have never met with him, nor have I met with a man who ever saw such a person. We say, with regard to infants, 
Scripture saith but very little. And therefore, where Scripture is confessedly scant, it is for no man to determine dogmatically. But I think I speak for the entire body, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions, and those unknown to me, when I say we hold that all infants are elect of God and are therefore saved, and we look to this as being the means by which Christ shall see of the travail of his soul to a great degree. And we do sometimes hope that thus the multitude of the saved shall be made to exceed the multitude of the lost. Whatever views our friends may hold upon the point, they are not necessarily connected with Calvinistic doctrine. I believe that the Lord Jesus, who said, Of such is the kingdom of heaven, doth daily and constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. Our hymns are no uh, ill witness to our faith on this point, and one of them runs like this, Millions of infant souls compose the family above. Top lady, one of the keenest of Calvinists, was of this number. In my remarks, says he, on Dr. Noel, I testify my firm belief that the souls of all departed infants are with God in glory that in the degree of predestination to life, God hath included all whom he decreed to take away in infancy, and that the decree of reprobation hath nothing to do with them. Nay, he, he proceeds further and asks with reason how the anti-Calvinistic system of conditional salvation and election or good works foreseen will suit with the salvation of infants. It is plain that Arminians and Pelagians must introduce a new principle of election, and insofar as the salvation of infants is concerned, become Calvinists. It is not an argument in behalf of Calvinism that its principle is uniform throughout and that no change is needed on the ground of which man is saved, whether young or old, yes. Well, John Newton of London, the friend of Coper, uh, noted for his Calvinism, holds that the children in heaven exceed its adult inhabitants in all their multitudinous array. Gill, a very champion of Calvinism, held the doctrine that all dying in infancy are saved. An intelligent modern writer, Dr. Russell of Dundee, also a Calvinist, maintains the same views, and when it is considered that nearly one half of the human race die in early years, it's easy to see what a vast accession must be daily and hourly making to the blessed population of heaven. A more common charge brought by more decent people, for I must say that the last charge is never brought except by disreputable persons, a more common charge is that we hold clear fatalism. Now, there may be Calvinists who are fatalists, but Calvinism and fatalism are two distinct things. Do not most Christians hold the doctrine of the providence of God? Do not all Christians, do not all believers in a God hold the doctrine of his foreknowledge? All the difficulties which are laid against the doctrine of predestination might with equal force be laid against that of divine foreknowledge. We believe that God hath predestinated all things from the beginning, but there is a difference between the predestination of an intelligent, all-wise, all-bounteous God and that blind fatalism which simply says, well, it's because it is to be. 
between the predestination of Scripture and the fate of the Quran, every sensible man must perceive a difference of the most essential character. We do not deny that the thing is so ordained that it must be, but why is it to be but that the Father, God, whose name is love, ordained it? And not because of any necessity and circumstances that such and such a thing should take place. Though the wheels of providence revolve with rigid exactness, yet not without purpose and wisdom, the wheels are full of eyes, and everything ordained is so ordained that it shall conduce to the grandest of all ends, the glory of God, and next to that, the good of his creatures. But we are next met by some who tell us that we preach the wicked and horrible doctrine of sovereign and unmerited reprobation. Oh, they say, you teach that men are damned because God made them to be damned and, and that they go to hell, and not because of sin, not because of unbelief, but because of some dark decree with which God has stamped their destiny. Brethren, this is an unfair charge. Again, Election does not involve reprobation. There may be some who hold unconditional reprobation. I stand not here as their defender. Let them defend themselves as best they can. I hold God's election, but I testify just as clearly that if any man be lost, he is lost for sin. This has been the uniform statement of Calvinistic ministers. I might refer you to our standards, such as the, the Westminster Assembly's Catechism and to all our confessions, for they are all distinctly stating that man is lost for sin, and that there is no punishment put on any man except that which he richly and righteously deserves. If any of you ever have uttered that libel against us, do it not again, for we are as guiltless of that as you are yourselves. I am I'm speaking personally, and I think in this I would command the suffrage of my brethren. I do know that the appointment of God extendeth to all things. But I stand not in this pulpit nor in any other to lay the damnation of any man anywhere but upon himself. If he be lost, damnation is all of men. If he be saved, still salvation is all of God. To state this important point yet more clearly and explicitly, I shall quote at large from an able Presbyterian divine. He said, The pious Methodist is taught that the Calvinist represents God as creating men in order to destroy them. He is taught that Calvinists hold that men are lost, not because they sin, but because they are non-elected. Believing this to be a true statement, it is not wonderful that the Methodist stops short and declares himself, if not an Arminian, at least an anti-predestinarian but no statement can be more scandalously untrue. It is the uniform doctrine of Calvinism that God creates all for his own glory, that he is infinitely righteous and benignant, and that where men perish, it is only for their sins. In speaking of suffering, whether in this world or in the world to come, whether it respects angels or men, the Westminster Standards, which may be considered as the most authoritative modern statement of the system, invariably connect the punishment with previous sin and sin only. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge 
for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. The larger catechism, speaking of the unsaved among angels and men, says, God, according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. Again, the end of God appointing this day of the last judgment is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. This is no more than what the Methodist and all other evangelical bodies acknowledge, that where men perish, it is in consequence of their sin. If it be asked why sin which destroys is permitted to enter the world, that's a question which bears not only on the Calvinist, but equally on all other parties. They are as much concerned and bound to answer it as he. Nay, the question is not confined to Christians. All who believe in the existence of God, in his righteous character and perfect providence, are equally under obligation to answer it. Whatever may be the reply of others, that of the Calvinist may be regarded as given in the statement of the Confession of Faith, which declares that God's providence extendeth itself even to the first fall and other sins of angels and men. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. It is difficult to see what more could be said upon the subject, and if such be the undoubtful, uh, undoubted sentiments of Calvinists, then, then what misrepresentation can be more gross and that which describes them as holding that sinners perish irrespective of their sin, or that God is the author of their sin. What is the declaration of Calvin? Calvin says, Every soul departs at death to that place which it has prepared for itself while in this world. It is hard to be charged with holding as sacred truth what one abhors as horrid blasphemy. And yet this is the treatment which has been perseveringly meted out to Calvinists in spite of the most solemn and indignant disclaimers. Against nothing have they more stoutly protested than the thought that the infinitely holy and righteous and amiable Jehovah is the author of sin. And yet how often do the supporters of rival systems charge them with this as an article of faith? That was the end of Spurgeon's quotation. And he goes on now. A yet further charge against us is 
that we dare not preach the gospel to the unregenerate, and that, in fact, our theology is so narrow and cramped that we cannot preach to sinners. Gentlemen, if you dare to say this, I would take you to any library in the world where the old Puritan fathers are stored up, and I would let you take down any one volume and tell me if you ever read more telling exhortations and addresses to sinners in any of your own books. Did not Bunyan plead with sinners, and whoever classed him with any but the Calvinists? Did not Charnock, Goodwin, and Howe agonize for souls, and what were they but Calvinists? Did not Jonathan Edwards preach to sinners, and who more clear and explicit on these doctrinal matters? The works of our innumerable divines teem with passionate appeals to the unconverted. Oh, sirs, if I should begin the list, time should fail me. It's an indisputable fact that we have labored more than they all for the winning of souls. Was George Whitfield any the less seraphic? Did his eyes weep the fewer tears, or his bowels move with the less compassion because he believed in God's electing love? and preach the sovereignty of the Most High? It is an unfounded charge. Our souls are not stony, our bowels are not withdrawn from the compassion which we ought to feel for our fellow men. We can hold all our views firmly, and yet can weep as Christ did over a Jerusalem, which was certainly to be destroyed. Again, I must say, I am not defending certain brethren who have exaggerated Calvinism. I speak of Calvinism proper, not that which has run to seed and outgrown its beauty and verdure. I speak of it as I find it in Calvin's institutes and especially in his expositions. I've read them carefully. I take not my views of Calvinism from common repute, but from his books. Nor do I, in thus speaking, even vindicate Calvinism as if I cared for the name. But I mean that, that glorious system which teaches that salvation is of grace from first to last. And again, then, I say it is an utterly unfounded charge that we dare not preach to sinners. And then further, that I may clear up these points and leave the less rubbish for my brethren to wheel away, we have sometimes heard it said, but those who say it ought to go to school to read the first book of history, that we who hold Calvinistic views are the enemies of revivals. <laughs> Why, sirs, in the history of the church, with but few exceptions, you could not find a revival at all that was not produced by the Orthodox faith. What was that great work which was done by Augustine when the church suddenly woke up from the pestiferous and deadly sleep into which Pelagian doctrine had cast it? What was the Reformation itself but the waking up of men's minds to those old truths? However far modern Lutherans may have turned aside from their ancient doctrines, and I must confess some of them would not agree with what I now say, yet at any rate Luther and Calvin had no dispute about predestination. Their views were identical, and Luther, on the bondage of the will, is as strong a book upon the free grace of God as Calvin himself could have written. Hear that great thunderer while he cries in that book, let the Christian reader know that God foresees nothing in a contingent manner, 
but that he foresees, proposes, and acts from his eternal and unchangeable will. This is the thunderstroke which breaks and overturns free will. Need I mention to you better names than Huss, Jerome of Prague, Farrell, John Knox, Wycliffe, Wissert, and Bradford? Need I do more than, than say that these held the same views, and that in their day anything like an Arminian revival was utterly unheard of and undreamed of? And then to come to more modern times, there is the great exception, that wondrous revival under Mr. Wesley, in which the Wesleyan Methodists had so large a share. But permit me to say that the strength of the doctrine of Wesleyan Methodism lay in its Calvinism. And the great body of the Methodists disclaimed Pelagianism in whole and in part. They contended for man's entire depravity, the necessity of the direct agency of the Holy Spirit, and that the first step in the change proceeds not from the sinner, but from God. They denied at the time that they were Pelagians. Does not the Methodist hold as firmly as ever we do that man is saved by the operation of the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost only? And are not many of Mr. Wesley's sermons full of that great truth, that the Holy Ghost is necessary to regeneration? Whatever mistakes he may have made, he continually preached the absolute necessity of the new birth by the Holy Ghost. And there are some other points of exceedingly close agreement, for instance, even that of human inability. It matters not how many may abuse us when we say man could not of himself repent or believe, yet the old Arminian standards said the same. True, they affirm that God has given grace to every man, but they do not dispute the fact that apart from that grace, there was no ability in man to do that which was good in his own salvation. And then let me say, if you turn to the continent of America, how gross the falsehood that Calvinistic doctrine is unfavorable to revivals. Look at that wondrous shaking under Jonathan Edwards and others which we might quote. Or turn to Scotland, what shall we say of Machane? What shall we say of those renowned Calvinist Chalmers, Wardlaw, and before them, Livingstone, Halden, Erskine, and the like? What shall we say of the men of their school, but that while they held and preached unflinchingly the great truths which we would propound today, yet God owned their word, and multitudes were saved? And if it were not perhaps too much like boasting of one's own work under God, I might say personally, I have never found the preaching of these doctrines lull this church to sleep. But ever while they have loved to maintain these truths, they have agonized for the souls of men. And the sixteen hundred or more whom I have myself baptized upon profession of their faith are living testimonies that these old truths in modern times have not lost their power to promote a revival of religion. Well, I have thus cleared away these allegations at the outset. I shall now need a few minutes more to say, with regard to the Calvinistic system, that there are some things to be said in its favor, to which, of course, I attach but little comparative importance, but they ought not to be ignored. 
It is a fact that the system of doctrines called the Calvinistic is so exceedingly simple and so readily learned that as a system of divinity it is more easily taught and more easily grasped by unlettered minds than any other. The poor have the gospel preached to them in a style which assists their memories and commends itself to their judgments. It is a system which was practically acknowledged on high philosophic grounds by such men as Bacon, Leibniz, Newton, and yet it can charm the soul of a child and expand the intellect of a peasant. And then it has another virtue. I take it that the last is no mean one, but it has another, that when it is preached, there is something in it which excites thought. A man may hear sermons upon the other theory, which shall glance over him as the swallow's wing gently sweeps the brook, but, but these old doctrines either make a man so angry that he goes home and cannot sleep for very hatred, or else they bring him down into lowliness of thought, feeling the immensity of the things which he had heard. Either way, it excites and stirs him up, not temporarily, but in a most lasting manner. These doctrines haunt him. He kicks against the pricks, and full often the word forces a way into his soul. And I think this is no small thing for any doctrine to do in an age given to slumber, and with human hearts so indifferent to the truth of God. I know that many men have gained more good by being made angry under a sermon than by being pleased by it. For being angry... They have turned the truth over and over again, and at last the truth has burned its way right into their hearts. They've played with edge tools, but they have cut themselves at last. It has this singular virtue also. It is so coherent in all its parts. You cannot vanquish a Calvinist. You may think you can, but you cannot. The stones of the great doctrines so fit into each other that the more pressure there is applied to remove them, the more strenuously do they adhere. As you may mark that you cannot receive one of these doctrines without believing all. Hold, for instance, that, that man is utterly depraved. And you draw the inference that then, that certainly if God has such a creature to deal with, salvation must come from God alone. And if from him, the offended one, to an offending creature, that he has a right to give or withhold his mercy as he wills. You are thus forced upon election. And when you've gotten that, you have all. The others must follow. Some, by putting the strain upon their judgments, may manage to hold two or three points and not the rest. But, but sound logic, I take it, requires a man to hold the whole or reject the whole. The doctrines stand like a soldier's in a square presenting on every side a line of defense which is hazardous to attack but easy to maintain. And mark, in these times, when error is so rife and neology strives to be so uh, rampant, it is no little thing to put into the hands of a young man a weapon which can slay his foe, which he can easily learn to handle, which he may grasp tenaciously, wield readily, and carry without fatigue. A weapon, I may add, which no rust can corrode, and no blows can break, trenchant and, and well 
and Ilda, a true Jerusalem blade of a temper fit for deeds of renown. The coherency of the parts, though it be, of course, but a trifle in comparison with other things, is not unimportant. And then I add, but this is the point my brethren will take up, it has this excellency that it is scriptural and that it is consistent with the experience of believers. Men generally grow more Calvinistic as they advance in years. Is not that a sign that the doctrine is right? As they are growing riper for heaven, as they are getting nearer to the rest that remaineth for the people of God, the soul longs to feed on the finest of the wheat and abhors chaff and husks. And then I add, and in so doing I would refute a calumny that has sometimes been urged, this glorious truth has this excellency that it produces the holiest of men. We can look back through all our annals and say to those who oppose us, you can mention no names of men more holy, more devoted, more loving, more generous than those which we can mention. The saints of our calendar, though ungananized by Rome, rank first in the book of life. The name of Puritan needs only to be heard to constrain our reverence. Holiness has reached a height among them which is rare indeed. And well it might, for they loved and lived the truth. And if you say that our doctrine is inimical to human liberty, we point you to Cromwell and to his brave Ironsides, Calvinists to a man. If you say it leads to inaction, we point you to the Pilgrim Fathers and the wilderness they subdued. We can put our finger upon every spot of land, the wide world o'er, and say, here was something done by a man who believed in God's decrees. And inasmuch as he did this, it is proof it did not make him inactive. It did not lull him to sloth. The better way, however, of proving this point is for each of us who hold these truths to be more prayerful, more watchful, more holy, more active than we have ever been before. And by so doing, we shall put to silence the gainsaying of foolish men. A living argument is an argument which tells upon every man. We cannot deny what we see and feel, be it ours, if aspersed and calumniated, to disprove it by a blameless life, and it shall yet come to pass that our church and its sentiments, too, shall come forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. I was taken from the New Park Street and Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 7, pages 300 to 304. And thus begins with us a conference of sorts, too. Only we won't have all these other men speaking to us. Over the days to come, we will have Spurgeon himself talking about the different aspects of this incredible subject. I trust your mind will be open, and if it's already open, that you'll go deeper in these things of God, or just be reminded about how wonderful is the very plan of God for your life and for mine. And I think that's about it for today. Um, I could tell you all the other things you could find on this site, but I think we've gone long enough again. Let's, uh, let's do this again soon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we will talk again very soon. Bye-bye.